What happens when you put 175 San Franciscans in a room to talk about solving our city's problems? Grab a seat, folks. Grab a seat, folks. Last week, we found out with a day-long SF Next Solutions Conference. We talked about homelessness, public safety, and housing. People listened to each other, criticized, asked questions. They came up with short-term changes and breakthrough reinventions of our systems. I'm Laura Wenis. This week, dispatches from a day of people literally putting this podcast's name into action. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. The Chronicle's SF Next poll tells us what's on residents' minds. Homelessness, crime, and housing affordability. We know these are the challenges of our era, and we also know that they're not simple things to fix. Experts disagree about how to handle them. Take homelessness. Joe Wilson, executive director of the nonprofit Hospitality House, comes at the problem with lived experience. He was once homeless himself. So two and a half years ago, prior to the onset of the pandemic, there were more than 1,100 people on the wait list to get into emergency shelter. The city's approach to that problem was to eliminate the wait list, but not add more shelter beds. So it is true. It would be foolish of me to tell you to deny what you see every day. Yes, so you are seeing more people. We don't think that's representative of the majority of stories in that there are people like me who found themselves for a variety of reasons on the street and needed someone to reach out to them. I think that affords us an opportunity to lift up the best of what community can be. He doesn't always see eye to eye with elected leaders about how our system should be shaped. Hold city departments, the ones that have commissions, I'm going to get political here just for a second, homelessness and supportive housing does not have a commission. It should for improved accountability and engagement and transparency. You need that, an opportunity for people like you to confront, to ask questions, to get answers. That is the responsibility and the hallmark of an enlightened community. There are also differences of opinion within pretty much any group of people worried about their safety on the street in the face of ongoing violence targeting Asian Americans. Cecilia Lay is the host of the Chronicle's Fifth and Mission podcast. She talked with activist Eddie Zeng, who's been incarcerated and now runs the New Breath Foundation, and Sarah Wan, who runs the nonprofit Community Youth Center. They talked about how different perspectives can be within the community. Here's Cecilia's question and then Eddie Zeng. When Chesa Boudin was recalled, a lot of people framed it as, oh, the city is rejecting progressive policies or reform. Asian Americans were credited for a lot of that effort in a lot of newsroom coverage. So for both of you, you know, what has this politicization sort of meant for the community? Obviously, it's thrust a lot of us into the spotlight. It's motivated a lot of action. But is there also a downside for how political this has gotten? Well, that's the nature of uh, living in San Francisco and the San Francisco politics, right? And so put that aside, I want to say that the whole recall really is triggered by something that is totally unexpected, right? Which is called the Kung flu, the Wuhan virus, right? By the previous administration, 
and then the pandemic. Nobody expected that. So all those challenges, everything that is thrown at not just the DA's office, but all the departments right, in the city of San Francisco for too long, that Asian Americans or Chinese Americans, refugees, that we have been invisibilized. We have been lumped together as the model minorities, that we don't have challenges. And so when we're able to look at how this recall, not just in San Francisco, right, but in other places, we're talking about how do we have criminal justice reform. So now when we want to have progress, it doesn't mean that we don't want to hold people accountable. We're just saying that we have to do it in a way that is responsible. We have to do it in a way that is representative to the people suffering, right? How do, how do we do that? And so the way to do that is we have to listen. We have to listen and not just come in to exert our privileges. Here's Sarah Wan with the Community Youth Center. I think what my experience in the past is that whenever there's a special like incident and violence happen in the Asian community, everybody come together and then try to find a quick fix solution, put a pending. Oh, let's do this violence intervention program for one year or for two years and everything will be fine. And then we'll come back to another cycle when something happened. We're always being very reactive. I really hope this time with this polarization really brought a lot of attention to our community and also resources that we can finally really focus in a you know, longer or long-term solutions to our community to really end the violence. There's also heated disagreement over just one small slice of our housing debate. John Doherty from the Electrical Workers Union and Jay Bradshaw from the NorCal Carpenters Union looked like they were about ready to get in a fight. Listen, you guys, but I how about the question this? that was asked. Good. Yes, thank how you about, very much. How about you get this? a couple of union guys up here and this is what you're going to get. I good. love it. <laughs> it's all good spirit. I love it. It boils down to this. They're not on the same page about whether or not we should accelerate housing production for homeless people by building modular housing. Bradshaw's Carpenters Union represents workers at a factory that churns out these Lego brick-style units in Vallejo for assembly in other cities. He says unions need to adapt to the times, and modular is coming whether they like it or not. Doherty, with the electrical workers, says modular housing construction is shoddy and leaves the units full of problems. He also worries that the pressure to drive down construction prices by building off-site is eventually going to result in units being built in China or Mexico. You'll hear a question from the audience first, then John Doherty, electrical workers, then Jay Bradshaw, carpenters. Hello, my name's Chris. I'm in the real estate business here in San Francisco. Why don't the unions back off, support modular housing, and say the first 5,000 units, first 2,500 units that come to San Francisco, we will support. You still can control market rate housing. Let the affordable housing be built. Chris, we're going to find somebody then. No, hold on. We're then going to be subject to yeah. look at the cost of union labor because that's what comes out of that. When we've got to go back in and repair something, mm-hmm. we're the ones who get blamed. And all we're doing is fixing someone else's mess. And to your question on giving it a shot, four projects have gone. The three that had, got, had water damage, every place they had to open the walls, there was a violation. Every place. So if you took it as a sample, you would say, looks like it's going to be everywhere. The bottom line is, is that the production, right, that needs to happen, any labor organization, they probably don't want to listen to my view on this, but any labor organization that thinks that off-site and modular and faster ways of delivery isn't coming is at peril. No doubt about it. 
I mean, there, there was many, many years ago a buggy whip makers union as well. And the bottom line is, I don't mean that as a slide against anyone, you have a full right to run your organization how you're going to run it. However, we intend to bring solutions to the housing problem. Anything we could do, and we're not popular in a lot of labor circles right now, and that's okay with me. While all this was going on, some much more collaborative work was happening, literally in the back rooms. But these weren't shady deals being brokered in secret. About 30 activists, experts, and apolitical residents had been invited to participate in a sort of structured brainstorming process to arrive at potential solutions to specific parts of our biggest problems. They spent the day hashing out what easy fixes were low-hanging fruit, what breakthrough solutions could really change the game, and what some cascading benefits and unforeseen fallout could be from those ideas. The group thinking about public safety decided to focus on property crimes because those seemed a little less complex to address or prevent. Still, a lot of what they came up with would change the way that policing works rather than laws or prosecution. Carla Martin presented for this group. Who polices, how they police, where they police, how police are staffed, what they're focusing their time and attention on. We thought a short-term low-hanging fruit fix could be, and again, we were encouraged to think big, we came up with a San Francisco supervisor exchange program. So instead, (laughs) so part of this, so what we meant by that is requiring each supervisor to randomly spend a week, a month in another supervisor's district to live in that district with those people. One cascading impact we thought would be more empathy and understanding of the entirety of the San Francisco community, less partisanship, and one unintended consequence we thought might be there's a possibility that this could reemphasize the otherness. When we're thinking about breakthrough solutions could be a lot of this was tied to the housing solution, but we thought we could staff police stations the same way they do as firehouses. So if we can't fix housing right away, police are required to physically live in the police station in the district where they are policing when they're on duty. Some groups went off script. Here's Sarah Dennis Phillips with SPUR, a local public policy think tank. She was in one of the groups trying to tackle housing affordability. She said her group was supposed to look at short-term low-hanging fruit solutions, but they agreed that plenty of those are already under consideration. Instead, they wanted to look at how to simplify the city's notoriously complex permitting process for housing. So we were looking at breakthrough solutions specifically for San Francisco, and we wanted to put two forward that we thought through. One was, what if you just took a pilot area, removed restrictions, made the process easy, and saw what happened? The other breakthrough solution that that we gave some thought to was the idea of taking the politics out of the equation. And I think the word Jake came up with is ombudsman, right? What if land use decisions, housing approvals were not subject to political decisions and we didn't have to go through, I think, all the work that we talked about at City Hall through the homeless issue, but there really was an impartial body that could say, based on the positives or negatives, this is how this goes forward. Philip's group wasn't the only one that threw out the prompt and decided to chart a new path. Maybe we should have expected that. Instead of diving right into the question and asking, talking about shelter, we stepped back and took a little perspective. More of where they decided to take these conversations after a break. At the SF Next Solutions Conference, we had people break into small working groups to brainstorm solutions to specific aspects of local problems. 
The Chronicle gave them prompts to work on, to guide the discussion. But for a lot of folks, the questions didn't feel right, so they decided to reframe. Mark Nagel from Rescue SF, an organization that focuses on compassionate responses to homelessness, was part of a group tasked with thinking about shelter. The Chronicle gave us a question to start the day. How can we create more shelter for unhoused people living on the street? Instead of diving right into the question and talking about shelter, we stepped back and took a little perspective. Our group was fortunate in that we had two members of the group who had lived experience with homelessness. The question we revised comes to this. How can we create the right model for unhoused people to move to permanent housing as soon as possible? We have to recognize that most people don't need this one-way path to permanent supportive housing. In the past, if someone was not very sick, the city would say, look, you're not very sick right now, we can't help you. Stay in the streets for a few years, get super sick, and then we'll help you. And that's how it worked. Um, So the city, though, needs to have a path for people who aren't so sick, so they can get some services, get back on their feet, and then find a path to getting jobs, to getting independent housing, perhaps with a subsidy, it's independent housing, and the subsidy then can taper over time. And for many of those people, the hope is that they would be living without any government subsidy. The city does not have that model in place right now. The same reframing of the prompt happened in Caroline Feng's group. She's an affordable housing developer with the Mission Economic Development Agency. We actually had a couple of other questions, and so this is the first of the other couple of questions that we considered. How do we create the housing that is most needed within the context of a capitalist economy? Our sort of most immediate solution, if you will, is we have to generate more revenue to build affordable housing. We can do this as a city. We are one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And so being able to really think about where we can get that money, we should be tripling the bonding that we're currently doing around affordable housing. We should be looking at property tax reform. We should be looking at how our corporate dollars are actually used to match the housing need of the collective workforce that supports our corporate institutions. And we should be thinking about changing the permitting to increase the amount of units. Too many proposals came out of these sessions to play individually. Things like converting downtown office space to housing, better workforce development programs, figuring out how to get better crime data. Audrey Brown from the SF Next team has collected these proposals, and they should be available to browse on the SF Next page by Tuesday evening. Find them at sfchronicle.com sfnext. With these presentations complete, the rest of the attendees were turned loose on the brainstorming groups. So this is the part where we're going to have a little bit of a chaotic moment where we get our circles organized. Everyone split into big circles depending on what topic they were most interested in and gave their feedback to representatives of the working groups on their solutions. I walked from one group to the next, listening in on conversations about housing, crime, and homelessness. And I've been concerned really about this continuum of people who become homeless. And are these sustainable over the years? Are we always going to have all this money being spent on every year a new crop of people? What is being done about root causes, about preventative, these programs where you can catch somebody before they become homeless because they need a little bit of rent payments or something like that? One of the first things that we learned was that it's not enough just to move people off the streets. If we really care about addressing the homelessness crisis, we have to stop the flow of more people into homelessness. And that's a lot, there are no easy answers there. There's a lot that does want to be there, but they get stuck at the access, is what I'm saying. People want to have a place to live. They want to have that dream. It gets stopped at the case management when they say, hey, how do we get your idea? 
I, I don't care if every organization has that free $7 you bring to the VMV, you get that free ID. Who cares if you do not have birth certificate, you don't have your U.S. citizenship, you don't have your green card to support that. San Francisco will not give it to you. It was clear that people see housing for anyone and everyone as key to the fabric of the community. I immigrated when I was two and we moved to Chinatown. That's where a lot of Chinese American families went and they went there because of the cultural affinities and because you could actually navigate your way through a difficult process. Healthcare was hard to get. You know, my dad commuted all the way to Silicon Valley before it was the big tech mecca for jobs and then drove back and then realized he could actually hold down an apartment in San Jose better than he could deal with the commute. But then we were, I think, more integrated in that there were opportunities to move out of your neighborhood or into other places and you weren't forced to commute while on distances. Having some kind of actual legislation that would help small landlords. Because during COVID, the worst of COVID, they were people who did really poorly, whereas people who were big or big corporate landlords didn't have the same problems, threw people out, whatever they did. But that in itself is something that I think is important to helping us keep the city going as it is. I heard frustration about crime and a sense that it's going unchecked. I will say there's a lot of organized. Where I live, it's not just a random person yeah. or neighbor. It's organized. They're in, they're out. They do 15 cars. It is organized. They do not get in trouble. It's not the police. They can't be there all the time. It is reasonable as a San Francisco to think that shouldn't happen. The thing I'd like to see is I'd like to see more police just walking the beat. You used to have people walking up and down Mission Street or walking through my neighborhood in Glen Park, and I just don't see it anymore. Didn't we used to have things called Neighborhood Watch, where we kind of took care of our own communities too? San Francisco, I've lived here almost 50 years. Sometimes I think we just want somebody else to solve the problem, and we turn around and point fingers at who's to blame. And I just think, you know, the whole theme of this today has been, you know, we've got to start reaching out and doing things for ourselves. And finally, the Chronicle wanted to get some feedback about the process in general and what we should do with the ideas generated by this day. Because why bother with an event like this and then forget about it? Once again, the crowd didn't disappoint. Just a suggestion for your next step, okay. I'm Gerald Harris. I'm here representing the Commonwealth Club. I'm on the board of the Commonwealth Club. Uh, good to see you guys again. But what I see missing in this whole thing is a process that creates a shared vision through which we can all move toward, right? Because we can talk about solutions and all that kind of stuff, but until we have a shared vision, like, you know, the Civil Rights Movement had a shared vision, right? You need something like that to motivate people towards that. But I didn't hear a shared vision for what we're trying to create in the future, is that more inclusive? Is it, you know, what is that? Because as an African-American, the only thing I can see is San Francisco wants less people of color here. I just want to comment on this gentleman back there that talked about a shared vision. Maybe that's too touchy-feely for a lot of people, but if we don't decide what kind of city we want to live in, I don't know how we can solve problems to get there. So we should do that. San Francisco Politics 101. You know, the charter here seems very different. How things end up on the ballot here are very different than potentially where some of us came from. We vote on a lot of things that other people in the country don't vote on. Why do we do those things here? 
You know, why are elected officials not making some of these decisions? I think the main suggestion that I would have moving forward is that this seems like an excellent opportunity to basically involve those who are most vulnerable, marginalized, et cetera, envisioning what the future of the city might look like. And so I would love for SF Next to innovate on what are the ways that we can make this particular process more accessible to those people who couldn't be in today. And whether that's a matter of things like what Sarah had mentioned earlier in a talk about like having like mobile community engagement kind of center or technology solutions or otherwise. Would you work with us on that? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Hit me up. <laughs> Chronicle editor-in-chief Emilio Garcia Ruiz immediately promised on stage he'd assign one story idea someone suggested, laying out exactly what it takes to turn an empty lot into housing. Here on the SF Next team and Fixing Our City, we're following suit. We'll consider these suggestions our assignments for the coming months. But you didn't need to be there to let us know what you think we should pursue. We want to check out your ideas. Do you have a solution you want the city to try out? Know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. Next time on Fixing Our City, two measures on the November ballot promise to streamline the production of affordable housing in San Francisco. But haven't we tried to streamline housing before? We'll get into that next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext. <laughs>